Hello, everyone, and welcome to the In Defense of Plants podcast, the official podcast of InDefenseofPlants.com. What's up? This is your host, Matt. Welcome to the show. How is everyone doing this week? Before we begin, I just want to say, if you're enjoying the show, consider supporting it. And one of the best ways to do that is to pick up some of our customizable merch. It's a lot of great vintage prints, and because they're customizable, you can find the style that works for you. All of those links can be found in the show notes over at indefenseofplants.com slash podcast. You can also find it in the apparel section of the top of the website. Uh, but yeah, I couldn't be doing this without support, so consider doing that. But today, we're talking about microbiomes and duckweed. Microbiomes is a term that's thrown around quite a bit in popular media. Oftentimes, it's an abused subject matter that is poorly interpreted. But today, we have a scientist that is studying that in the coolest way. Joining us to talk about this is Jason Lorich. He is a PhD candidate working with Lemna and their microbiome to try to understand how both the plants and their microbes are affected by environmental stress. As you're going to hear, this is pretty important research, especially in the greater context of theoretical understanding, but also applied sciences. But I don't want to steal any of his thunder. I'm going to let him describe it all to you because he's a great proponent of the science. So let's just jump right into it. Without further ado, here's my conversation with Jason Large. I hope you enjoy. All right, Jason Lurich, welcome to the podcast. I am super excited to talk to you today, but for those that aren't familiar with your work, let's start off with an introduction. Tell us a little bit about who you are and what it is you do. Yeah, thanks so much for having me uh, here today, Matt. Um, I enjoy your podcast, so it's a pleasure to, to oh. be on as a, as a guest. Nice. Um, so I'm a PhD candidate at the University of Toronto, and I took a somewhat circuitous route to the world of the world and delights of plants. I started off in the uh, marine biology realm, actually. <laughs> I was out on the East Coast in, um, in Newfoundland at Memorial University, and I was studying the associations of these very tiny, very charming um, clams that haven't uh, received a lot of attention, thiocerids. And what's interesting about them is they have these sulfur-oxidizing bacteria that they, that they farm in modified gill cells, basically, hmm. and consume for nutrition. And that work got me very interested in different aspects of mutualism, ecology, and evolution, because I was exploring concepts like how do these hosts control their bacterial populations so they don't overwhelm their tissues? How do they incorporate various forms of nutrition over uh, you know, seasonal variation in organic carbon input into their sediments, stuff like that? And that led me to pursue a PhD with Megan Fredrickson at the University of Toronto. And she's um, internationally and, and in Canada quite the leader when it comes to the field of like mutualism, evolution, and ecology more broadly. And her lab has focused in the past on mostly associations between ants and plants. Um, so that's where I got into plants. And I did some work on the of insect plant associations. And over the kind of the secondary half of my PhD, I've been working to cultivate um, this experimental system between duckweeds and their microbiomes with the goal of being able to ask questions, fundamental questions about the way that host microbiome mutualisms evolve and are regulated in this system. Nice. Yeah. Excitingly circuitous. It sounds like you've been able to get your hands dirty in a lot of different realms of, of really cool and often underappreciated realms of uh, biology there. Yes, and got to was able to do field work in a lot of interesting places, which nice. is definitely one of the unsung benefits of being a a biologist, plant or marine. Certainly, yeah. If you don't like that part of it, uh, probably stick to the molecular side. At least you can be in a comforted uh, climate controlled lab and teach their own. I say, and and so you know, it sounds to me like you're the kind of scientist that comes at this from a systems based perspective, or at least testing theory and and finding different systems to to kind of analyze those theories, right? Yeah, I, I, I would I would say that's a fair characterization, especially in the world of host microbiome interactions, hosts and microbiomes, vast communities of, of bacteria and fungi and more that live in and on plant tissues. One of the reasons that the one of the things the field is struggling with is that we don't have excellent systems in which to test a lot of theories mm. because we have problem replication and the timescales of experiments. And so developing, I think, Systems like duckweed, which are which are very small aquatic plants that enable high replication, high throughput experiments, was a way for me to get at some of these fundamental questions. See, now that's a fascinating perspective that only 
you really can get from someone kind of in the thick of it. And, and indeed, you are in the thick of it. But why do you think that is? Why is it so difficult for all of the time we've known about mutualisms? I mean, there's something that's sung high and wide throughout the entire even public science community, and I think sometimes overapplied in a lot of cases. But at the same time, it seems like we kind of have a grasp on it, which seems to fly in the face of the idea that we don't have a lot of good systems to study the, the theory of mutualisms and symbiotes and stuff like that. Yeah, no, that's a great question. I think part, I think part of it is just kind of a historical bias, right? Like we have <laughs> this idea of study, let's say plant pollinator interactions, and you get really sucked into that literature and that world, and then you have this kind of binary thing that you're 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 obsessed with, and you get lots of interesting data and lots of you know really awesome progress, really awesome revelation comes out of those kind of single pair associations, but you're losing all the context of other other network interactions. Um, whether they be with, you know, bodyguard ants or something. But I think specifically in the world of microbes, it's even harder because you're dealing with communities of thousands, <laughs> of potentially thousands, hundreds of thousands of different microbes that could all have meaningful effects on a single plant host. And there could be kind of emergent interactive effects of each of those individual microbial interactions. And so just like, how do you test that? Mm. How do you measure the fitness? these different components of a complex microbial community, how their effects on hosts, and then, you know, the fitness consequences of that interactions for the microbes themselves. That's hard to do. And I think that's why a lot of the studies that have advanced the idea that microbiomes are mutualisms rely on things like metagenomic sequencing rather than mechanistic demonstrations of relationships through experimental progress. Fascinating. Uh, that makes a lot of sense when you hear it that way. And I, I remember I went, it was a couple years now, but I think the statement probably stands still, but uh, a microbial biologist came and talked about just trying to understand diversity of microbes in a soil community. And this is in one region of the world. And they said, we're kind of like where botany was at 150, 200 years ago, where you're like grab and describe and just try to get a handle on how many of whatever unit we're going to call it is out there, let alone what role they're playing in any system, let alone the context dependency of a lot of those questions. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. And, and when you think about how organisms interact, that in and of itself opens up a whole new door because what one does in unison is not necessarily what they do in tandem. And so how do you as a scientist go from, say, looking at clams to then looking at duckweed? I mean, is that a big shift or is it more about just these are the style of questions I just got to figure out how to cultivate X, Y, Z? Yeah, it it was a big shift, actually. And, and you know, perhaps my route was even more circuitous than I first laid out. I, I joined Megan's lab and had all these great, great intentions of working with legumes and rhizobia because there was another PhD student there who was working on kind of part, variation in partner quality and partner choice. And then she had done this massive field experiment and found essentially no variation in partner quality. Everything was interacting with the exact same strain in our in our in our field site. And so I was like, well, you know, darn, I've got to, I've got to figure out something. And at the time I, I was working on, um, yeah, these kind of tripartite associations between pollinators and bodyguard ants and um, neotropical weeds, which forms the first half of my thesis. And I was like, I really want to dive into this microbial world, but I want to develop a system that's more tractable. Mm. And I'm the first person to work on duckweeds in you know, with, with this aim by any measure, but, uh, there are a number of groups I would say that are trying to cultivate this as a as promising experimental system. And there are reasons why. So did that answer your question? I'd yeah. Say, uh, yeah. I think yeah. it's, it's fascinating to me that, you know, I've always been very focused, but a lot of people are more question-based and they just try to find systems that work. And to me, I can't imagine shifting gears that strongly, but for some people it works. And I think that's just, again, the sort of bias of how we approach different ways of doing scientific inquiry. 100%. Yeah, I'm definitely a question first kind of, kind of researcher. Nice. Yeah. And so when we're talking about microbes and the microbiome, I think that's where the first clarification needs to come in. I mean, when do you become a part of a microbiome? Like, is it I touched a kitchen counter where chicken was being cut and now I got salmonella on me and that is my part of my microbiome or like where's that line in the sand I guess or is there one yeah I don't think there's a clear-cut answer to that oh no um, because the distinctions between kind of environmental bacteria and bacteria in the so-called microbiome are so fluid they can change very rapidly they can change um 
you know, with changing environments or just over the lifespan of a, of a plant. There's lots of work showing that the, the microbiome of a seedling is extremely different from the microbiome of an adult plant. And, you know, there can even be like organ level um, compartmentalization of microbes, microbiomes. So like the floral microbiome is going to be very different from the root microbiome. So if we take the root microbiome, uh, the rhizosphere, as perhaps the, the typical example, the soil is full of thousands of different strains uh, of microbes, and the roots are going to recruit to them a certain subset of those microbes. But that individual strain, let's just call it strain rather than species here, is going to be present both in the free-living environment and simultaneously in the in the microbiome, right? And there's presumably going to be movement back and forth and all subject to mechanisms such as host control, signaling pathways, immune, ex- immune system expression, uh, everything everything like that. So I don't think there's a clear cut answer to that, Mm. but certainly for the microbiome to be useful as an evolutionary concept in the way people think it is in terms of a source of secondary genetic adaptation that can affect plant phenotypes and fitness, there needs to be a certain permanence to that. So no, I would say (laughs) picking up salmonella when you touch an unwashed, uh, surface in your kitchen, it does not immediately become part of your microbiome. Now, if you ingest that salmonella and there's kind of a low level uh, establishment of that that culture in your gut for, for months or even weeks. Interesting. Yeah. I, I, Biology is a mess, isn't it? <laughs> so when you really get into it, it is a big blurry gray area. And that to me is also kind of fun from a scientific perspective because you get to start trying to tease apart whatever context you're thinking of. Yeah, and it doesn't always cooperate with the um, the human need to classify and distinguish between things. Oh, shucks. What are you going to do? <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> and so when you look at your publication record, or at least research you've been involved with, uh, a big theme that starts to jump out is this context dependency of the relationship. And you kind of hinted at it there, which is fascinating to me, that something about part of the environment or multiple parts of the environment can essentially change the type of relationship we're seeing between, in this case, plants and their microbiome. Yeah, absolutely. It's, it's, it's long being kind of hypothesized that in, in mutualisms more generally, stressful environments are going to create the incentive and opportunity for cooperation between species. And there's definitely some work from like Sarah Juice Group, for example, that has shown this in microbial communities, um, that environmental stressors, uh, can facilitate cooperation between species that wouldn't be able to tolerate them individually. And that certainly can be the case with, with uh, duckweeds and their microbes, although we've, we've had some counterintuitive results when it comes to that. Uh, I, I, if you're referring to some of the work we've done with zinc, for example, that had some, some odd trends emerge in our data set. Right. And I mean, again, another illustration of how complex this, this world really is. And this idea that stress can sort of precipitate more cooperation among organisms that might not either get along or historically not come together despite that uh, is fascinating in and of itself. Um, You know, what is sort of some leading theories behind why it's really that sort of stressful or disturbance type environment that would sort of push things to more of a a cohabitation in a a mutualistic microbiome sort of way? Right. So one of the, I think, lenses that is useful here is the idea of, of niche breath. So a common kind of uh, understanding of mutualisms is that they are a way for organisms to expand the realm of abiotic environments that they can tolerate. So if you imagine yourself as a plant that requires a certain threshold of nitrogen in the soil in order to be able to grow, prosper, reproduce all the essential things, and uh, that nitrogen level is presently lacking, well, that's an environmental stressor that's going to radically reduce your growth, but maybe you can associate with a microbe that is going to perform that nitrogen fixation for you. And now as a pair, you're able to colonize that environment and thrive in it that neither one of you would have been able to do without the other. And in that case, there's some evidence, for example, that actually overloading the environment with nitrogen to the point that the plant's own demands are met without the assistance of the bacteria, well, then it no longer needs to be providing carbon to this this other partner because its needs are already met and it can change the, the um, nature of the interaction from positive to neutral or even, even negative in some cases. Ah, so really it comes down to there being some sort of mutual benefit to both organisms. I think a lot of times when you read 
pop science literature. You see it all the time nowadays with like the wood wide web stuff. It's it's almost like this altruistic sort of motivation is being planted on these organisms to tell some sort of thinly veiled story about humanity and culture, whatever you want to say. But, you know, at the end of the day, these things aren't giving away for free. And there there has to be in that tug of war some sort of benefit for both groups, microbial and plant. Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. And and I, and I think specifically that ties back into something I was saying earlier about the issues with ho- with plant microbiome research, which is that a lot of the times those mechanistic exchanges that benefits the microbes aren't well demonstrated because it's hard to go after and find empirical evidence of that. So we have lots of really solid evidence of the way that microbes benefit plants, but not a lot of the, the, the reverse um, effects. Mm. Few people actually measure like the consequences of association with plants for microbial fitness. Right. I mean, like, how would you isolate microbes and say, well, this one had a net benefit of biomass by 0.7 micrograms or, you know, whatever measurement it, I could see that being extremely challenging because half the time it's like, well, we know this is a unit of biology. We don't even know if, like you said, we're, we're, we're avoiding the species concept a lot of cases. Yeah. Yeah. It is, it is tough. Yeah, I, I don't even know how to get into like the full complexity of microbiomes and the whole issue with bacterial strains versus species versus amplicon sequence variants. But um, I mean, we've we've tried to do that in our system uh, by just conducting experiments where we we inoculate these these tiny aquatic plants with uh, that we sterilize in advance with some combination of strains, and then mm-hmm. you can measure the fitness consequence of that association for both partners. You can put the water in your wells through a flow cytometer and measure the number of bacterial cells um, in wells with and without plants. So that's kind of our approach. Nice. So just looking at sort of abundance before and after sort of scenario. Yeah. Yeah. Huh. Or you, know, you have, you have, let's say one of the, one of the experiments I've been working on is about, you know, the, the presence of salt and, um, and plants and their effects on the evolution of the London minor microbiome. And so you can have wells with or without plants, with or without salt stress. And then you look at how microbial abundance changes over time in each of those different experimental treatments. Right on. All right. So let's talk about this work. Why duckweed? I mean, we've kind of established that, hey, it's not easy work and we're looking for something that has more replicability to allow us to answer bigger and, and more theoretical umbrella questions. But why duckweed? Yeah, that's a that's a great question. So duckweed presents a lot of unique advantages as a study system. But I want to start actually with a, a like, historical curiosity that I find quite charming. Yes, which please. is Anthony Van uh, Leeuwenhoek, who is like kind of the father of microbiology, the discoverer of protozoan bacteria. Actually, one of the organisms on which he first documented uh, what he called Anomalcula were duckweeds. Huh. Uh, from his his local stream, he, he built his own uh, microscope lenses, and he imaged microbes on duckweeds. In addition to from you know human mouths and other <laughs> other places, so there's a long and a rich history of people working on duckweeds as a as a system for studying plant microbiome interactions. So that's kind of curious. Yeah, that's cool. Uh, but I really think what spe- what separates them out from other plants, and there are lots of great model systems, people do great work in this kind of area in Arabidopsis, but I think what really separates out duckweeds is the simplicity of their design and lifestyle. So duckweeds are mostly clonal in nature. They can reproduce sexually. They produce the smallest flowers of any angiosperm, and only very rarely in nature. So if you go out and you genotype a pond full of spiradella or lemna or some other duckweed, you will find very little genetic diversity. Chances are they're all going to be descendants of one or two clones. And what's what's good about this is that it makes measuring host fitness, the fitness consequences of these interactions on hosts, much easier. You don't have to use proxies like number of leaves or above ground biomass like you often have to do if you're studying host microbe interactions through um, like legume rhizobia associations. You can just directly measure the production of biomass clonally as the proxy, as the direct measurement of host fitness. So that's that's one thing that's really nice about them. What's also nice is that they have extremely rapid growth rates. What this means is that you can see really powerfully observable effects of different microbial or environmental treatments in the lab in less than two weeks. 
So lambda minor, the species I work on, can double in biomass every four days. But some of the even smaller duckweeds, such as members of the Wolfia genus, can double every one to two days in biomass. And they have the fastest growth rates of any known flowering plant. Dang. It's a group of superlatives. Yeah, yeah, yeah. They're also the smallest angiosperms. Yeah. yeah. So so that is also makes them amenable to experimental manipulation, right? Because yeah. you don't have to take up vast swathes of swaths of a greenhouse or anything. Like I said, we, we do all of our experiments in 24 or 96 well plates. And we just put them in an environmental chamber. We can manipulate the conditions that each well experiences and come back and measure duckweed and microbial growth 10 days, 10 to 14 days later. Wow. I guess yeah. it also helps that they're um, fairly easy to grow or at least amenable to cultivation. Anyone that has a fish tank or a pond where some accidentally got in and they didn't want it uh, can say that for sure. <laughs> perhaps, yes, perhaps some would say too amenable, although it's always funny. Um we sometimes have trouble keeping them alive in the lab and no one else, <laughs> no one understands that because yes, it's seen as a weed, but somehow if, uh, when you want something to survive, that's the only conditions under which it will perish. <laughs> <laughs> that's the key. You got to stop wanting it, but exactly. it's also really exciting just from like a science communication perspective, because, you know, we are having a back and forth before we, we, we set up this interview and, you know, one of the things I always hear from people is Ugh, pond scum. How do we get rid of it? I'm like, it's so cool. There's so many reasons to like duckweed. I mean, I get it if it's really clouding out your fish tank, getting into filters or just, uh, you know, covering yeah. the surface of a pond. But like, let's stop for a moment. And remember just how amazing these little floating plants are. They're not even anchored yet. They still have roots and they're doing everything they're, uh, every other plant does just in miniature. Yeah, yeah. And they have a lot of promise for for fundamental research, but also for applied research, right? Like, yeah. there's a lot of there's a history and now a reality of like incorporating duckweed into farming techniques and water remediation, extraction of SS like excess phosphorus and nitrogen from contaminated water associated with like swine farming, which is also a nice feature of the system because you, that obviously makes it easier to apply for grants, but it's another lens through which to see these as useful, interesting organisms. I was, I was just reading a paper su suggesting that duckweeds will be an important component of, you know, uh, long voyage spacecrafts mm -hmm. because their rapid growth rates and their ability to remove contaminants like nitrogen, ammonia from, from water and phosphorus and incorporate it into edible biomass would be great for closed bio biogenerative systems on the uh, recycling carbon dioxide, producing oxygen, and producing food. So, yeah, I think there's a lot to be said for them, and I think they're very interesting. Yeah, yeah, totally. I mean, talk about connecting people to the research that you do. It doesn't take many steps in the conversation to attach it to at least some hook that someone is going to go, oh, wow, okay, all right, I'm listening. Yeah. And so when you think about duckweeds and the microbiome, I mean, here we have among the smallest flowering plants in the world, yet there's enough surface area for there to be a microbiome. I mean, when you think of just the diversity of potential microbes, uh, is it a lot? Is it a little? Are they specific or is it vary by system? I mean, how, when we're just talking the microbiome of duckweed, is it a vast world out there or is it pretty scaled to you know the size of the organism? It's, it's, it's not scaled to the size of the organism. Hmm. So the duckweed core microbiome shares a lot of the same taxa as the terrestrial leaf microbiome, which is interesting. Yeah. Uh, the terrestrial leaf microbiome and root microbiome are very different, maybe because they're in contact with very different substrates, soil and air. But in, in duckweeds, it's all, it's all in contact with water, right? So they're much more similar and they are very, yeah, they share a lot of core taxa with the terrestrial core microbiome. And so in, in, in individual ponds, we're doing some work to try to better characterize what variation, what seasonal variation in, in the kind of diversity of microbiomes might look like, what uh, local variation in that might look like. But there are likely um, hundreds, thousands of strains uh, that colonize the surface of the minor, and that would be you know, on the roots, but also the underside of their fronds have these kind of fissures in which um, microbes can grow. But of course, they can also form biofilms on any available surface, including plant tissues, um, and accumulate there. Yeah. And it's also worth pointing out that these dense mats of duckweed that you know, are reducing water circulation, that can enable for just a general increase in microbial load in, in the water column around duckweeds, even if they're not 
intimately attached to host tissues, right? Oh, wow. So kind of... Don't my, increase microbial load is a good thing in this context. <laughs> right, right. Yeah. Also worth pointing out. But just again, them all plants on some level are sort of ecosystem engineers. It's a function of scale. So even the environment they create in the immediate surroundings around where they're floating can be altered simply by their presence. Yes, absolutely. Wow. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, talk about niche space, right? I mean, that's exactly what you started off by talking about is increasing that breadth and like imagine a body of water without it and now add that complexity and, and the fostering of potential micro life, microbial life there. And suddenly now biodiversity is up. And, and to me, that's a good thing. <laughs> biodiversity is up. And one of the observations, and this is not something I formally studied, but just from doing extensive field work on duckweeds, is that you always either see duckweeds or algae dominating these these ponds. So we, I work in the GTA, we Greater Toronto area, sorry, um, and uh, we did a lot of like visiting these fairly same developments with a single central stormwater retention pond. And they were all the, always either dominated by duckweeds. But then there were like other plants present and they seemed like fairly healthy ecosystems or they were dominated by algae, which was just everywhere. And it was kind of less pleasant aromatically, shall we say. So, um, yeah, I think duckweeds, I, I, don't, I, I don't think they're ponds come. I think there are many worse ways for a pond ecosystem to, to be than the condition shaped by lemna minor or other duckweeds. Awesome. I love it. That's a great defense of duckweed right there. <laughs> <laughs> So from your perspective, I mean, when you can start to think about chipping off your area of research from this incredible system, what kind of questions are you trying to ask with duckweed at the center? Uh, you know, there's a lot of different ways this can be tackled from just yeah. what you've outlined. Yeah. So I've been approaching duckweeds through the lens of multiple mutualism theory. So I mentioned earlier that historically mutualism biology has really studied these kind of binary associations. So I mentioned clams and sulfur oxidizing bacteria, but for your audience members, um, honeybees or bumblebees, the native North American pollinators, and a certain floral, a certain flower species or something. But in reality, every organism is interacting with dozens, hundreds of potentially beneficial species mm. at any given point in its life or over over the entire period of its life it'll have many of these different associations and a lot of my work has been focusing on asking how that community context actually changes the outcomes of the interactions and that's why lemna minor and microbiome is so interesting because you can think of microbiomes potentially as the ultimate multiple mutualism if these microbes are actually benefiting plants and they are benefiting from plants they're mutualists and there are potentially hundreds thousands of them so I've been using kind of a synthetic community consisting of 10 strains. I've isolated, you know, roughly 10 strains from a bunch of different populations of duckweed. And then we do kind of mixed and singular inoculations to on, on plants and in the absence of plants to look at how uh, community dynamics and interactions both within those microbial communities, but then kind of emergent interactive effects of those communities um, inoculated on hosts, how that affects the net benefits the host gets from those relationships and how that affects microbial productivity. It's kind of analogous to like biodiversity ecosystem uh, functioning experiments. Right. Right. And so instead of thinking of it as really a one way street on one little road and yes. one thing it's, it's now it's all the lanes. How many different ways can they go and what's going on with them? Yes. And this, this matters. I mean, fundamentally it's just a really interesting question to ask right. how much, if we if we know that this plant is associated with five different partners, they each have, you know, benefit A, B, C, D, E on, on the central, the shared host. Can we just measure all of those in isolation, add them up and predict what the total sum of the, the interaction is going to look like? Or do we need to study community effects? So one really, I think, powerful and charismatic de demonstration of this would be plants pollinator ant bodyguard associations. Ant bodyguards are great at deterring herbivores from consuming plant tissues, but they can also frighten off pollinators. Mm. So if you measure each of those interactions in isolation, you know, the effects of pollinator interactions on plant fitness and the effect of ant bodyguards on plant fitness, you're probably going to be overestimating the net benefits that the plant would actually get from those two simultaneous interactions in nature, because even the scent of ants can deter pollinators from visiting flowers, right? So 
in that context, it's important to actually conduct experiments where that community complexity is present. Hmm. And in an applied sense for, for microbiomes, for microbiome science, I think it's also very important because we really want to know there's a lot of interest in harnessing microbiomes and beneficial microbiomes to maximize and optimize plant phenotypes and increase their growth rate, especially in the context of climate change, uh, soil salinization, the exhaustion of soils. Can we, or the um, runoff of agricultural uh, fertilizers and, and many other environmental problems, can we maximize the pr productivity of our crops by manipulating the microbiomes? And in order to do that, we need to understand, well, is the sum effect of a microbiome, does that really redound to kind of single strains of large effect size? Or is that kind of a community level process in which we need to assess an existent stable community and then inoculate plants with that, with that whole um, range of organisms? Wow. Yeah, I've heard that or uh, that theme put forward before about, you know, helping food security issues and, and you know, the, all the uncertainties we face as a species trying to live the way we do. I've never really heard it in this context. And when you sort of outline the complexity of trying to understand one system, one context, and then you layer that on, like, we've got a lot of work to do, right? <laughs> yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. <laughs> wow. And, and as with all questions, it certainly seems this way to me when you're giving, given the option, option A or option B, it ends up being a little bit of both. <laughs> so <laughs> single strains certainly seem to matter quite a bit in our system and others, but also, yeah, we, you know, we and others have evidence that community interactions also, also matter. So, yeah. 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 yeah it's kind of reminds me of being a grad student and the first, you know, when they're telling you how to like give a presentation or how to make a conclusion they're like don't say it depends but you're like but it always depends like yes. <laughs> that's the answer most of the time why are we not allowed to say that yes Oof. yeah okay so the next question becomes how do you start to tease this apart in a laboratory setting i mean it sounds like you're going out collecting some of these duckweed trying to cultivate them in the lab how do you know you've sterilized one let alone how do you know you've inoculated it with whatever strains you're interested in because i always think of like this kills 99 percent of germs you're like but what about that one percent <laughs> what are you doing to even start to tease this apart yeah you've just landed on um, one of the perhaps the biggest source of headaches over the entirety oh, no. of my figuring out <laughs> you sterilize duckweeds and keep them sterile it took a long long time <laughs> a bunch of different protocols and even now i'm not sure we haven't particularly sterile. And I can tell you a bit more about that, about that later. Uh, so we sterilized duckweed just with um, a PBS rinse. We sonicate off attached microbes and then they're very resilient. So you can just throw bleach at them repeatedly and that gets rid of all algae. That was initially a real problem we were having was algal contamination in our experiments and our stock populations. But through cereal bleaching, you can get rid of those. And then uh, we tested for sterility simply by placing those quote unquote sterile fronds in enriched media, the idea being that if there were any microbes left attached to the duckweed, I'm sure there were endophytes, but epiphytic bacteria, they would be able to colonize this enriched media. And so uh, according to that test and definition of sterility, we were able to generate sterile plants. Nice. But um, of course, when I went and then did experiments with those sterile plants, I found, you know, interestingly, that some experimental evolution of microbiome communities seemed to help even uh, even plants that didn't get any microbes. So we, we're awaiting some sequencing results uh, that will speak to that. But I do not think we achieved 100% sterile plants. But that's the idea. At the very least, we have a heavily knocked down microbiome. A plant that is ready to receive bacteria, and then you can plate out crushed um, leaf tissue, isolate individual strains, sequence them, mix them together in whatever combinations you like, and inoculate wells with them. Another advantage of duckweed here is the aquatic environment. It being so homogenous means that you don't have to worry about overloading the highly heterogeneous environment of soil and worrying about which microbes are getting where it's all just going in a single well together and then you can just seal off those well plates to ensure no environmental contamination so that is how we do our we design our experiments dang that's that's a lot <laughs> and you know I, I love when people get to hear that because it's not just oh yeah we mixed it around we measured some stuff and we went home yay everything was easy and happy like no it is 
a lot of blood, sweat, and tears, and a lot of hours just figuring out how to set experiments up, let alone execute them, collect the data, analyze everything else that has to come before you get to a publication, essentially. Yes. Yeah. Oof. Yeah. Especially when you, you're bringing, you're trying to develop an, a new system for your for, for your lab. Like I so said, there are other people that have worked on duckweed for many years, but in the Fredrickson lab, I, that was the first time we um, brought duckweeds into our repertoire of, of study organisms. So there were some kinks to work out. And I was not the only one to work on that. I should say there's a lot of other members of the map that and lab that were responsible for a lot of progress on these issues. Excellent. Yeah. I mean, it, it takes a village, right? <laughs> and so, you know, when we're talking about, I guess you've been calling them strains um, in the system that you're working in, in the experiments you've been doing, how many strains are we thinking about here? I mean, is there an estimate of like just how diverse this microbiome is or, or a unit of measurement that you're comfortable throwing out? <laughs> yeah. So we know that the commu- the synthetic communities we use are an order, if not two orders of magnitude, less complex than the field microbiomes that we've actually extracted from 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 duckweed fronds in nature. Um, they represent some of the dominant taxa of the core microbiome, so it's a, a reasonably representative um, synthetic community. But there's an inherent trade-off here, right? Um, if you want to be able to measure the fitness of individual strains and then and then pair them and mix them in communities, you can't work with the thousands of strains present on a microbiome, present in a natural microbiome. You probably can't even culture the thousands of strains. You definitely can't even culture the thousands of strains present in a natural microbiome because so many of those rely on their association, association with plants that can't easily be translated into a petri dish traditional approach uh, to cultivating microbes. There's a lot of work going on right now to solve that issue because that is a major conceptual hurdle for the field. How do we manipulate microbiomes? Working on kind of more complex uh, culturing methods that would allow for some kind of association with the plants. Do we just take plants from the wild, sonicate them, and then basically use that fluid as an inoculum for our experiments? Well, then you can't control experiment after experiment exactly which microbe is going into your treatments and you can't uh, potentially manipulate those microbes you can't track their performance across different environments over time that sounds tough (laughs) but obviously there's trade-offs and limitations to everything we can't control the world as much as we think we can we can't (laughs) especially the microbial world Oh, sorry. I re- yes. To answer your question, my, my synthetic communities are usually like 10 to 25 strains. Okay. So, I mean, not nothing, uh, but probably, like you said, pales in comparison to what the the milieu of whatever is out in the wild and, and <laughs> when you can't isolate things and seal them off in wells. <laughs> yes. Yes. Whew. And, and in general, uh, we tried to carve out a middle ground. A lot of the experimental work that really focuses on those definite strains that you can isolate and manipulate in order to kind of mechanistically explore the effects of the the relationship on them and and study them under very various circumstances over and over again or you just work with the whole microbiome and rely on a sequencing based approach to determine what's what may have been happening so a lot of studies have worked with you know two to five microbes so ours is obviously we're using using more than that but yeah the goal here is to get kind of a Goldilocks synthetic microbiome that's large enough that we can start to tease out some of the consequences of real world complexity, mm. but still manipulate microbes in isolation. Yeah. Yeah. As uh, one of my old professors used to say, like, eventually you're modeling reality and, and we have reality for that. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> right. So when we're talking about this, obviously the context of stress has to enter into the equation, um, at least in what you're aiming to do. So what kind of stressors are you throwing at these duckweeds to start looking at how these mutualists end up playing out? Yeah. So Anna O'Brien, and she's now at the University of, of New Hampshire, she's led a lot of work in the lab that I've been involved in looking at zinc. Uh, zinc pollution, which is an important urban pollutant in freshwater streams because it originates from tire degradation and gets mm. into the waters. And we know uh, that it has kind of negative effects on the growth of plants. And duckweed can actually be good at removing zinc from aquatic systems. 
So we've done done some work looking at the effects of zinc on hosts and microbes, but more, most of the work that I've been leading myself has been on salt stress, another really important urban pollutant of freshwater systems. Shockingly, if you've ever been to Toronto in the winter, we, we salt our roads very, very heavily. And some salinity levels in the spring during the runoff season have approached the salinity levels of seawater in some cases. So suffice it to say that there is a lot of salt pollution here. And so that is the real environmental stressor that I've been working with. Other people in the lab have been working with phosphorus and nitrogen, just nutrient, elevated nutrient levels that are stressful, a bunch of different things. I'm so happy you mentioned salt. I grew up in Buffalo, so we're practically neighbors. And uh, yeah, when I take my car to get fixed anywhere in the Southeast where I do research, the mechanics are always like, what the hell happened to the undercarriage of your car? And I'm like, road salt. It's, it's, you don't understand it unless you're from an area that regularly gets freezing temperatures. And I realize it saves people lives. It saves money. It saves taxpayer dollars, that sort of stuff. But its effect on the ecosystem is palpable to the point where like, now, in, in there's areas of the city of Buffalo, when you walk around, there's maritime salt marsh species growing along the sidewalks. And you're like, how? oh, you're following the salt. So it is a massive environmental stressor. <laughs> yeah. And one that's easy to manipulate, right? <laughs> yeah, well. which is nice. Yeah. So I, I, I'm guessing it back in the lab, it's a function of, you know, blend your microbes, run the controls and then different salinity levels. I mean, is that kind of how you approach it in, in terms of the experimental design portion? So, so my experiments with salt, I have actually been an experimental evolution project. Mm. So I've been working with, um, so there's this idea going back to Lynn Margulis of the holobiont, which is kind of the extreme articulation, the extreme version of the argument that microbiomes are really important for their hosts that they are essentially a second genome, a source of genetic variation upon which selection can act to optimize plant phenotypes. And so I conducted an experimental evolution project to see can we to see whether we can um, select on the microbial portion of of duckweeds, their microbiome, to improve their performance in the presence of salt over ten generations of evolution. But ten, yeah. So we're selecting on microbes only here. Um, and so for that experiment, uh, yeah, that's what basically what we did. We only had one salt level. We had treatments with plants, a couple different populations. They either did or did not receive microbes. We had microbe only treatments, salt stress, and then run that through multiple generations to track how, uh, potential changes in the microbiome are affecting host growth and microbiome growth. Wow. I'm beginning to see why short generation times is kind of crucial to the work you're doing. Yeah. <laughs> nice. And so how's this playing out? I mean, I I know you're, you're getting ready to defend and and kind of staring down the barrel. I don't know what you're comfortable with, with revealing at this point in time, but you know, what are you starting to see out of the results of some of these experiments? Yeah. So that's, that is the most important question in my life right now. Um, (laughs) No pressure. um, We're still, for this project, we're, we're still kind of waiting on some sequencing data to see what has happened over the course of our experiments. But it does seem like the presence of plants is extremely important in determining how microbiomes change over time in response to environmental stress. It seems to be more that way than the other way around. Mm. Like the association between plants and microbiomes actually seems to have more of an effect on how the bacteria tolerate salt stress and the rate at which their communities increase over time, then, then the presence of bacteria has on uh, changes in plant growth rate. But we did see an improvement in plant growth rate over time. Whether or not that's completely driven by the microbiome is, is, is complicated at the moment. But we do see that the presence of plants is a really important factor in determining the evolutionary trajectory of our, of our synthetic microbiomes. Dang, for the sake of this podcast, I'm glad that's the conclusion. <laughs> <laughs> no, that's that is actually amazing and and actually very um, startling to hear because I generally think of like oh it's the little ones that kind of run the world and we're just players in this bigger picture for them but it's actually pretty cool to think about the way plants can influence that and when you think about you know those early days of plants coming onto land and then going back into the water I mean they brought with them a lot of stuff and and plants truly do enable a lot more of the world to exist than anyone even 
plant nuts like me give them credit for. <laughs> Absolutely. Yeah. That's really exciting. It's, I mean, microbes are important, but it's not, it's not completely a microbial world out there. Right. Plants and organisms still matter. Well, I mean, as you pointed out, the fact that this is a study of mutualisms, it's, it's gotta be a two way street. And, and of course, like the microbes are having an outsized impact on the world's comparative to their biomass. But when you think about, well, you know, they need something out of it too. And, and it's fascinating to think that plants could almost be this sort of buffered vessel against a lot of really intense environmental onslaughts because yeah, I mean, as adaptable as microbes are, they still are single cells oftentimes and, and really at the whim of whatever chemistry is immediately surrounding them. Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. And, and, when you think about just the scale of microbes, they're they're so small that the 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 reality they live in is unimaginable to to humans, right? Like tiny changes in currents in the water that could be mediated by the presence of plants like duckweeds really matter a lot. Will matter a lot to them. The diffusion of root exudates from from duckweeds and other plants that fuel microbial growth on a on a tiny tiny scale. The exchange of other nutrients, amino acids, like that all is yeah highly mm. sensitive the presence of plants for microbes definitely and so are you sort of thinking that's where this is heading or at least that's a a, a takeaway is that really the 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 duckweed is this sort of stable atmosphere so to speak that they can live in or on and and kind of buffer them against those rapid changes or is it probably more complex than that i think it's more complex than that nice yeah so it's it's hard it's hard to say without some of our community sequencing data, but that we'll have that very soon. Yeah, I, I do think in our system and probably many systems, the plants are really shaping the biological context that microbes live in, and changing, probably changing who are the winners and losers of microbial competition mm. in the area of soil or water around their roots and tissues, and that would be a really interesting. I think there's a lot of really promising research avenues to be pursued along the, along those lines. Certainly. I mean, I can only imagine what the, the final conclusions, what kind of doors those are going to open up. But you keep mentioning waiting on the sequencing data uh, for the microbial side of things. What is that going to tell you? Like what what does doing some genomic sequencing or whatever kind of sequencing it is you're doing? What is that going to do for the story? What is that? What pieces of the puzzle does that give you? That's a great question. So because microbiomes are communities, when we talk about evolutionary changes, those changes can actually be ecological, right? They can be sorting of species, changes in abundances of different species. So sequencing data will allow us to differentiate those kind of effects, um, whether or not over time we've just seen a sorting of species and some have come to dominate communities. And is that what's predicting the effect on plants and the productivity of our microbial communities? Or is it actually mutations um, within strains that are you know, actual evolution at the at the level of stranger species that is introducing new genetic variation. So that is the kind of data we're waiting to see. And also, as I mentioned before, with the quote unquote sterile plants, we have some um, some rather <laughs> uh, unintuitive trends where we saw an increase in growth rate in the uninoculated plants over time, despite the fact that we only passage microbes and not plants from one generation to the next. So I am very curious to see if there is some kind of recalcitrant microbiome in those treatments that we did not manage to fully sterilize. Hmm. Fascinating. And boy, it wouldn't be a PhD program if you didn't have some major head scratchers at the tail end <laughs> just to spice and things up. <laughs> yeah. yeah. But that is yeah. really cool perspective to get about sort of the genomic approach, the community approach to trying to study this because it just really outlines how different of an approach it truly is when you have to look at things that you physically cannot see with the naked eye, let alone tease apart with a taxonomic key or something to that effect. Yeah. Yeah. Oof. And it's very promising, right? I mean, yeah. every year sequencing and deep sequencing gets so much faster and so much cheaper. And I'm intrigued by the idea of um, metagenomic sequence, but also metabolomic sequencing and trying to reconstruct through sequence data, what all of these microbes might be doing, might be contributing to their hosts. But I, I still think there's a an important place for experimental manipulation and a kind of mechanistic exploration of the benefits of these interactions for both partners. Oh, yeah. I think you can assume an or a microbe is 
is mutualistic, has a benefit on plants just because you find nitrogen fixing genes in its in its genome. Yeah, I mean, it could be a very selfish microbe that doesn't want to partner with anyone, and that I'm Absolutely. sure exists in a million different ways. <laughs> Whew. Well, this is amazing, and and really kind of a nice uh, approach to just how much we still have to learn, but how we can build on what we already know and go from there. Um, you know, if people want to keep a finger on the pulse of the work that you're doing, obviously there's still more on the horizon and you obviously have a very uh, rich area of questioning to explore as you move further into your career. But if people want to find out more about the work you're currently doing or work you're going to be doing in the future, where do you recommend they go looking? So you can find me on ResearchGate and Google Scholar. If you are looking to um, read any new publications that are coming out of the lab, you can also check out the Fredrickson Lab, Megan Fredrickson at the University of Toronto, um, who's published a lot on this, and Anne O'Brien at the University of New Hampshire, who has been a collaborator on much of the duckweed work. They are producing some really interesting research as well. Excellent. And I'll save again, as always, everyone the trouble of pulling over to write this down or getting out of the shower. Uh, stay, keep doing what you're doing. Be safe on the road. I'll put the links in the show notes so that they can find them much easier than they can writing them down and trying to remember and spell things right on Google later. <laughs> Perfect. Well, Jason, this is amazing. Thank you so much for taking time out of your schedule to talk with us about this. It is absolutely fascinating work. I think you got a really fruitful career ahead of you if you so choose to continue to pursue it. But Good luck. I know it's a slog, but uh, you, you're going to be great. And uh, if you have bring even a modicum of the passion you brought today, you're going to defend with uh, flying colors. <laughs> well, thanks. So much. It was a pleasure. Awesome. Well, again, hang in there and keep up the amazing work. Thanks. Cheers. Cheers. All right. Wasn't that incredible? People like Jason really show you just how complex the world of microbiomes are and why more science is needed to truly understand the effects on all of the organisms involved. And it just goes to show you when we're talking microbes, that can be a lot of different things. But isn't it cool to think about that in duckweed, let alone all of the other plants that inhabit our world? I thank Jason for taking time out of his busy schedule to talk with us, and it truly is busy. I wish him all the best in his defense, but as you're going to hear, I think he's going to be fine. Pretty soon, we'll be calling him Dr. Jason Larich. As always, all of the relevant links for everything we talked about can be found in the show notes over at indefensiveplants.com, where you can also find ways of supporting the show. As I mentioned at the beginning, you can pick up some of our customizable merch. You can get stickers. You can also buy a copy of my book or become a patron over at patreon.com slash indefensiveplants. I couldn't be doing this podcast without support in one way or another. So thank you to everyone who has pitched in thus far. It really means the world to me. And as always, I couldn't be doing it without you. But that is it for this week. I thank you all for listening. As always, hit that subscribe button and keep checking back in. But until next time, hang in there, stay healthy, and get outside if you can. This is your host, Matt, signing out. Adios, everyone.